0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, July 22nd, at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Paul Maxwell is a professor of philosophy and theology at the Moody Bible Institute, and About a year and a half ago, he wrote a series of articles that were were published on different uh, Christian outlets, and they were a series of tremendously personal and vulnerable and honest articles. And I want to read for you how the very first one started. He said this, if I could only look like the guy who played, and then he said, fill in your superhero. If I could only look like the guy who played Thor or Captain America or the Black Panther or 007 or whatever your man du jour is. He said, as men, we compare ourselves to everyone. He said, we compare ourselves to every other man we see in the gym. We come away from every movie we see wanting to exercise for 8 to 12 hours. We would rather jump in front of an oncoming truck than take our shirts off at the pool. He said, we feel pathetic and small and soft. We look at ourselves in almost every mirror we pass. And when we're alone, we flex. Not because we like what we see, but because we don't. We've spent hundreds of dollars on pre-workout, weight loss, weight gain supplements, we researched the best ways to bulk, to shred, to diet, to binge. And he said, health is not the issue here. There's a huge gap between being healthy and meeting our culture's ideals. And he said, it's in that space that lies any and every resource for a man to feel tremendous shame about his own body. Now, I don't know if you knew this or not, but men are not the only ones who can feel shame about their own bodies. Men are not the only ones who can look at themselves in the mirror and wonder if they're too big, too little, too tall, too short. They might be the only ones that wonder if they're too bald. But women struggle with shame regarding their own bodies as well. Jacquel Crow is a Christian writer. She's popped on the scene in the last couple of years In one of her works, she said, I don't remember the first time that I hated my body, but I remember how much it hurt. I looked in the mirror and I realized that my body was not perfect. It wasn't flawless. It was not like, and she quoted, as it should be. And what I can remember is feeling sick with shame. Shame. Last week, we talked a bit about the reality of shame and we attempted to define it and we began to talk about its impact that it can have on our lives and how we understand and relate to ourselves and to others relationally and even to God himself. And as we tried to define it just to get our our hands around it and begin to understand it anymore, we we began to tease out and and lean into a couple different definitions of it and one of them was this, an, an intense painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of being loved and belonging or receiving that love and belonging. And we talked a bit about shame and I told a bit of my story and its saturation in shame. But here's the thing we didn't quite touch on and we'll continue on this week and next week. Shame isn't something that happens in the abstract. Shame gets very specific. Like how you feel about your own body. And how the way you feel about your own body impacts the way that you relate to yourself, to others around you, the world around you, and even God himself. And so this morning, here's what we're going to do. I want to return again this week. To Genesis chapter 2, because I want us to consider again, even more specifically, if not by way of reinforcement, the origin of shame. And I want us to spend a little time considering something I mentioned last week, but didn't go into too much. And that's the distinction between legitimate and illegitimate shame. Well-placed shame and the misplaced shame that so many of us live in and deal with. Shame like how we feel about our own bodies. And then next week, just so you know, I want to consider more specifically the impact that misplaced shame or, or illegitimate shame, we'll call it this morning, has on the way we relate to one another, our actual relationships socially, and how we relate even to God himself, but then see very specifically how God works his covering and cleansing and accepting grace for us in our shame out to us through his word, by his spirit, and through his people. So I want to deal with that next week. But this week I want to go back to the origins in Genesis chapter 2 and I want to talk a bit about legitimate and illegitimate shame. In particular, the misplaced or illegitimate shame you and I deal with when it comes to the bodies that God has created. One social worker, her name is Erica Vargas, she describes three ways that shame, especially shame we feel about our bodies, can, can manifest itself, can make its presence known to us. She said the first way is by criticizing your own appearance through a judgment or a comparison to someone else. You don't have to raise your hand if you've done that, but I'm assuming most of us have. She said the second way is criticizing someone else's appearance in front of them. I'm hoping not many of us have done that since middle school, but, you know, I stand to be surprised. And then the third way, she said, is criticizing another person's appearance without them knowing about it. Probably far more guilty of that. Three primary ways, she says, that the shame we feel about our own bodies begins to make itself known to us if we pay attention. So here's the thing, there's this sweet time in our life when we're children, when we're much younger, when there is an innocence and a playfulness that exists, when there is a sense of being self-aware but not self-conscious about ourselves that exists, and we all love it. It's that time in life that everybody splashes over Facebook and Instagram with their kids when their kids are half clothed out in the playground, out in the yard, spinning around dancing and singing, completely utterly uninhibited by anyone else around them, completely comfortable with who they are, enjoying life all together. It's in those moments in life that everyone begins to quote and, and write over the pictures, the words of Psalm 139, you formed me Lord in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, even when there was not yet one of them. There was this moment in life when The body that God had given us was very truly and specifically an instrument of play and of expression and of experiencing the world around us aware but not self-conscious. And then as one writer says, a day comes when we realize that beauty is far more important than function and that our body isn't beautiful. And we're left asking ourselves, how did I never realize just how ugly I am, how fat I am, how awkward I am, how fill in whatever your word for shame I am? Another counselor, a Christian counselor, is writing about just the distinctions of shame and, and the various ways we deal with it. And she was telling a story of her own life, and she said, I was 11 years old. And my cousin was the ripe old age of eight when she told me that she was going to go on a restrictive diet because she was just too fat. He said she wasn't a bit overweight, but that didn't matter at all. See, something happens from going self-aware and not self-conscious to the day when we realize or we begin to feel like we're not as we should be. And the sources of that contamination, to use that word, and I use it specifically, are infinite. If we were to go around the room, we could ask everybody, and everybody could give us five or six different instances when they remember beginning to feel those thoughts for the very first time in their life. And there would be 10,000 different ones. Now, there would be similarities and patterns across them, but there would be so many different ways that we can't even begin to get into it. I mean, the easy target is to say we live in an absolutely image-saturated world all around us, everywhere we look, from our phones to our computers to the drives in the car to the TV to everywhere, our images of what everyone says is perfect. But I don't know if you've realized it or not, but the majority of what you see with your eyes, those men and women in those pictures, they are the 1% or the half of the 1% that the world says beautiful is beautiful. And the half of the 1% still have to be Photoshopped. I don't know if you've ever realized that or just had to come to grips with that. But you don't have to live in that media, Instagram, Facebook saturated world. I grew up in the 80s and 90s and I went to high school in the early 90s and I went to a large high school in Atlanta right outside the city in Cobb County. Had almost 3,000 students We were a sports high school. We had guys who played professional football, basketball, baseball, soccer, track and field in the Olympics, men and women in both track and field in the Olympics. It's a big school, a lot going on. And every single summer, do you know what they would do? They would take the football team and they would break them up by positional assignments, offensive line, defensive line, secondary, all those guys. And they would do series of photographs. Now think like strange calendar photographs. They would take these 15 to 18 year old guys, take their shirts off, put oil on them. They put bandanas around their face, cowboy hats on them. They stand like bandits in a saloon. You know, here's the defensive line coming at you. They'd have other pictures of guys again, shirtless and jeans or shorts oiled up with chains around their necks, sitting in a junkyard, you know, all these pictures. They would take these pictures. They would blow them up 10 by five. And do you know what they would do with them? That's what lined our cafeteria. So imagine being a 14 to 18 year old guy or girl every single day going to lunch surrounded by years of those pictures. That's what matters. That's what you're supposed to look like. Those are the things that get the attention. No one ever said that. Thousands of lunches, unspoken pictures and reminders of what perfect was supposed to be, what acceptable was supposed to be, what important was supposed to be. Patterns of the way in the house you think about and talk about eating and exercise and diet. Unspoken things that kids pick up on through the years. Countless conversations that might happen between mom and dad about the way they feel about their own bodies. Shaping for kids for decades how they think about their own. What they're supposed to think counselors are writing right now and they've been doing it for a little while about what they call the the generation of plastic surgery. You can watch the news and know that kids as young as 12 and 13 are getting plastic surgery right now, but that's not what they're talking about. As, as much as they are dealing with this same issue and going that route, what the counselors are talking about are about a generation of kids that they would put right now at about 35 and below who grew up in the homes of parents, male and female, who both pursued plastic surgery. And the kids grew up. And in their adolescence, their noses weren't quite the same as mom and dad. Their chins weren't the same as mom and dad. Their bodies didn't form like mom and dad's. And they can't figure out why. And they feel like they're not as pretty or as handsome or as acceptable as mom and dad. And then maybe they realize from mom and dad why that is and now what's their answer to the way they feel? You're not good enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not acceptable enough. Your body isn't right unless you go do this. The sources of this contamination that take this shift from self-aware but not self-conscious to the place where our body is bad. It's infinite. But what I want you to see, even by way of reminder for those that were here last week, is that the root goes much, much deeper than Instagram or cafeteria pictures or conversations in the house. The root goes much, much deeper deeper. So if you've got your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2, just to go back and remind us of what we looked at last week, what we talked about, and a couple of very specific things with regards to shame here and even how it, how it plays itself out of what we're talking about. Genesis chapter 2 starting in verse 25 through chapter 3 verse 9. I won't read the whole thing for us right now for, for time, but we did it last week and I'll, I'll come in and out of it this morning. But Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, if we start the journey there, in some sense, you kind of get the, the news headline or the Facebook timeline headline of what God says about Adam, about Eve, and about creation. This is the headline of the news feed in creation. What God had made, man and woman. They were naked and what? We talked about it last week. They were unashamed, right? In fact, if you were to go back just one chapter to Genesis chapter one, verse 31, Moses gives us this summary of God's declaration over all that he had made, all that he had spoken into existence, all that had overflowed out of the mercy and the wisdom and the love of God that he had spoken into existence. He looked at all of it, including Adam and Eve, physically, and what did he say? Chapter one, verse 31. That was very good. Good. Very good. And they were with God and one another, naked, exposed, and unashamed. See, I didn't say it specifically last week, and I want you to catch it this week. Shame is not what God intended for humanity. In fact, shame, quite literally, is the opposite of what God intended for humanity. David sums it up well for us again, Psalm 8. You don't have to turn there. He, he's again writing an out of an outpour of his heart, a song of praise that he's writing. And he says that God created man and woman, and we know from Moses in Genesis, he created them very good. And David said that God crowned them with glory and honor. The intention of God for the crown of his creation, for the height of his creation was glory and honor. Very good, exposed, vulnerable, present, and not ashamed. That is what we were made for. Shame comes into the story and shame is subhuman. We were made for glory and honor, and the way that God formed us and made us wonderfully and intricately according to his purpose before anything was that is was very good. And you begin to put those two things together, you begin to understand the praise that would flow out of David's heart when he would think about that which God had given him when he created him. But to get there, we need a work of God's spirit, and we'll, we'll get there. So the headline was naked and unashamed. But as we saw last week, the headline changed. And the headline at the top of the story very quickly became naked and ashamed. Where God had intended honor, there came dishonor. Where God had intended glory, there came pain. So what happened? What happened? Sin, right. If you were with us last week, you may remember that Adam and Eve, they they listened to the narrative of the serpent who lied and distorted God's good word to them. He twisted for them what God had said and the reality of God's judgment towards sin. He spun a narrative for Adam and Eve that twisted their thoughts and they began to believe that God was keeping them from glory and honor rather than having been crowned with glory and honor. That the glory and honor their hearts so desperately resonated with wasn't coming from God, but it was to be found independent from God. And so Paul tells us they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They swapped narratives. And they worshipped the creation rather than the creator. This is the very thing that begins to happen in the misplaced shame we feel with our own bodies. When we begin to worship our body. Rather than it becoming an instrument of worship to the creator. This is an aspect of the distortion of sin. When they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, the narrative switched. Shame flooded in. Verse 7 says their eyes were opened and they knew their nakedness and they were ashamed. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. Adam and Eve were the very first woke generation. Take it for what it's worth. This is where shame originated. And from this moment, shame has attached itself to our very being. But it's here that we said something last week that I want to talk about more specifically this morning, especially as it relates to the way you and I experience shame, particularly shame with the very bodies that God gave us. You and I have to help one another, as long as it's called today, learn to continue to distinguish between the two forms of shame. Shame comes in two forms, two different types. There's legitimate shame, or as John Piper will call it, well-placed shame. He's smarter, so we'll go with him. And there's illegitimate shame or misplaced shame. And you and I have to become adept at being able to distinguish between the two. If we're going to do that, we have to understand something. Here's what we have to understand. You and I experience shame. The presence of shame because our ancestors did something that was shameful. Every single man and woman who has ever taken a breath on this earth is a descendant of Adam and Eve. We all have a common ancestry we all have a common last name and the shame that adam and eve felt was not just a private emotion that they had but it was a public social reality one writer said they didn't just feel ashamed they were shameful before god because of what they had done you see this is a legitimate shame There is a sense of being unworthy or unclean or unacceptable in God's presence because of sin. And guess what, that's true. That's true. When we talk about shame and we talk about the different ways it's becoming more popular in our world to talk about and we talk about the different ways that that people propose for us to attack and to deal with the shame that we feel and we think that we need to to deal with our cultural reality and the world that we live in or our sense of self-worth and our sense of self-esteem, we have to understand that those things as good as they are only scratch the surface of the emotion that we feel. There is a legitimate shame that exists because of our sin before the eyes of God and the unworthiness or the uncleanliness or the unacceptableness we feel in God's presence is true and outside of Christ, those things are real. You see, in the Bible, legitimate shame functions as a means of opening up the eyes, the Bible will say, or or a moment of recognition. When you and I become convicted by the ugliness of our sin we feel legitimate shame the bible will talk about this kind of shame as being spiritually significant and a lot of times throughout the bible paul in particular will warn those who are living or acting without shame but this legitimate shame it always has a point of reference to that which is sinful in god's eyes That's the distinction with legitimate shame. Paul will say to the church in Rome, when you were slaves of sin, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now? What do you think he says? Ashamed. The sin that characterized your life, that you were enslaved to, when you look back on it in the grace of God, you realize that there is a legitimate shame that was attached to those things because of their inherent sinfulness. Again, we'll let let Piper talk. He's so much smarter. Piper said, well-placed shame can be a very healthy and redemptive thing. Paul said to the Thessalonians, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be, what do you think he says? Ashamed. Ashamed. Piper says that this means that shame is a proper and redemptive step in conversion and even in a believer's repentance from a season of spiritual coldness and sin. Shame is not something to be avoided at all costs. He said there is a place for it in God's good dealings with his people. So shame can be a very legitimate, Holy Spirit wrought source of conviction, but there's two forms. Illegitimate or misplaced shame can be a weapon of tremendous destruction. So, if legitimate shame is best identified and characterized by that which is sinful in the eyes of God, that which transgresses, the Bible says, his glory, what what helps us begin to, to differentiate this legitimate from this illegitimate shame? Well, one way we begin to differentiate this legitimate and illegitimate shame is its aspect of focus. So even a legitimate shame that, that draws us into feeling the reality of our sin before a holy God, that shame that lingers too long, that shame like we talked about last week where we understand, we believe, and we take the, by faith the reality of God dying in our place for our sin, for our guilt, and for our forgiveness, but underestimating that grace to cleanse us of that shame, and the shame of that thing sticks around too long, and the scar tissue begins to grow, That scar tissue produces a misplaced shame that we did not allow the gospel to deal with. Misplaced shame as opposed to legitimate shame. It can come from things that you are accused of doing that you didn't do, things that have been said inaccurately about you, things that have been done sinfully to you, and most specifically with regard to what I was talking about earlier with the shame, the misplaced shame that you and I wrestle with with regards to the bodies that God has given us. Illegitimate shame is shame that you and I feel for something that is intended to glorify God. You'll find that referred to in the Bible often in relation to the gospel itself. Well, Paul will, will declare, and you and I will quote it, we'll write it down on things. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it was intended to glorify the grace of God and the person of God and the work of God. Illegitimate shame is the shame that we feel or the embarrassment that we feel surrounding the gospel when we're communicating. That's something that's intended to glorify God. Well, guess what? So was your body. Your body was created by God and declared to be very good in his sight. It was crowned by his grace from the beginning with glory and honor. It's meant, as Paul says, and we'll look back at it later if we have time, it's meant to be offered to him as a living sacrifice of worship, holy and pleasing to him. But the shame that you and I feel with regard to our body is misplaced or illegitimate because our bodies are not in God's eyes meant to be sources of shame. They were made by him quite good, crowned with Honor. Legitimate shame can be a manifestation and a work of the Holy Spirit to bring about conviction and repentance. Illegitimate shame has to be a tool of the enemy. See, back in the garden, if you go back to the story, Adam and Eve, when they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they began to live according to a narrative that was not true, they were left, Moses says, exposed feeling what they weren't created to feel and so they began to sew for themselves coverings fig leaves to hide their bodies as they began to feel something they weren't created to feel much like Jacqueline crow talked about in her book when the day came when she looked in the mirror and thought why did no one tell me that i was ugly She began to feel something she was never created and intended to feel. And so a whole pattern would develop in her her life and in all of our lives when we begin to feel this misplaced shame where we try to sow our own fig leaves, so to speak. We try to find our own coverings, our own places to hide. We look for alternative paths to the glory and the honor for which we were crowned with relation to the shame, the misplaced shame that we can feel about our bodies. We can sow all manner of leaves. We can find various and sundry forms that can become obsessive in our our eating and our exercising. Again, we can avoid particular social interactions and particular places where we might feel physically exposed in a way we don't want to be. Just like Paul was talking about in that first article I read to you where he's like, I'm not going to go to the pool and take my shirt off. I'm going to avoid anything like that that I have to deal with. This misplaced shame that we take on about the bodies that God has given us, it can become a barrier with husbands and wives and the intimacy that God has given husbands and wives, that which is to be received, which is to be cherished, which is to be honored, which is to be shared. All of a sudden, the light's got to stay off. Everything's got to stay covered. Don't look at me. We have 10,000 different ways. That when we feel what we weren't intended to feel, especially in relation to the bodies that God has given us and the shame sets in, that we try to sew up our own leaves. And guess what? Let's just be really honest. For a moment, they make things feel better. Right? I'm going to step away from the Bible over here because I'm going to say something here that I'm going to read into something, but God can correct me and strike it from your ears. I have to believe that in the time between when Adam and Eve realized that they were naked and the shame set in and that natural impulse that we have to hide whenever we deal with shame, when that set in and they sowed those fig leaves in the time between those fig leaves and when God came looking for them in the garden, that time in between, they had to feel a little bit better. They had to feel like at least for the moment, at least for right then, that thing they didn't want to feel, that thing they hadn't realized, that thing they didn't want the other to see, it had to be okay at least for a moment. And all the different things that we do, they feel okay for a moment. And don't get me wrong, healthy eating, healthy exercise, healthy patterns, all great aspects of stewardship of the body and the time that God has given us. I love those things. They're not wrong in themselves, but misplaced or illegitimate shame with regard to the body that God has given us and our attempt to cover up and to deal with that shame can lead to all manner of things that become disordered. That which is naturally healthy stewardship can become very disordered. Budgets can get blown on unnecessary procedures and things. Isolation can creep in between people and in relationships. Social interactions can be avoided. Guess what? For a moment, you'll feel better. But the reality of it is those things cannot set us free. Why? Because the problem at hand isn't a cultural one. It's not even a self-image one. The problem at hand is with the heart. And what we need is rescue. What we need is what we started talking about last week, is we need God to teach us, by his grace, a new way to hide. And friends, that is the very thing that God has done We didn't look at it specifically last week, but I want you to see it this week. Look in Genesis chapter three. I told you last week that you could say that the majority of the redemptive story in the Bible is written from this reality of shame and this restoration of shame. I want you to see from the very beginning, from the moment the narrative changes and they realize something about themselves and shame sets in, I want you to see that from the jump right there, You get a glimpse of how God in his grace and in his wisdom is going to provide a way of freedom, cleansing and covering for his people and their legitimate and illegitimate shame. When they hid, sewed those leaves up, felt like maybe for a moment that was covered, what did God do? Do you remember what he did? Don't overthink it. What did he do? He came, didn't he? When they exchanged the truth for a lie, began to live by a different narrative, began to cover themselves up from one another, they hid in a tree. Why? Because God came looking for them. In their sin, God pursued them. God initiated with them. They went to a double hiding between the leaves and behind a tree. But God came for them when he found them he knew where they were we all never mind that's another story when he found them he dealt with the reality of their sin in his holiness he addressed their sin as a consequence for their sin God set them out Genesis chapter 3 of the garden. That place where he had dwelled with them, walked with them, communed with them. That place where they knew what it was like to be in his presence, naked, unashamed, vulnerable, honest, and all that was right and true and good and beautiful. God, in a consequence for their sin, set them outside of that presence. And you remember know what he did? Little detail. It'll come back in a minute. At the entrance to the garden, what did he put? He put two cherubim with flaming swords. So they couldn't get back to that place. Before he did, he did something else. Genesis chapter three, verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God did from the very beginning for them what they couldn't do for themselves. Right there at the jump when shame enters, God gives us a glimpse of how he is going to cover our shame with a sacrifice that he appoints. That there is going to be a new way to hide, a new way to be covered, a new way to be right in front of him, and he's going to make it possible. And the story plays out from there, and you see the very thing that he was pointing to in the beginning find its fulfillment in a different garden with a different man, revolving around another tree. And in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the very Son of God, who had exchanged a glory and an honor that was only rightfully due to Him and taken on human flesh and come to this earth, He had laid aside the glory and the honor that He deserved And in that garden, on the night that he would be betrayed and go to the cross, he faced another narrative, another path to the glory and the honor that he had laid aside, if there's any other way than this tree. And in that garden, that man, with regards to that tree, resisted the temptation of another narrative and another way And in that garden on that night, that man with regard to that tree entrusted himself fully and completely to the will of his father. And later on that night, he would go and he would lay himself down on that tree where he would be crucified, naked and utterly ashamed before the eyes of an entire watching world. Friends, this was the point of last week. We don't have a Jesus who simply died for our guilt and our sin. We don't have a Jesus who simply conquered death and the devil. Yes, and amen to all of that. But we have a Jesus who has entered into the deepest experience of our shame and nakedness. Friends, this, if you've been here before, you've heard us say it. This is what particularly made the cross so offensive to nearly every culture it ever was used in. When someone would be crucified, they wouldn't always be nailed. Sometimes their hands or their feet would be tied But every single time, the chief aspect of a crucifixion would be that that person would be stripped utterly naked and humiliated and ashamed in front of everyone else watching. And when Jesus was stripped naked and nailed to that cross and that cross was lifted up, he wasn't just naked and full of shame in front of the eyes of his tormentors. I think that's how I've always thought about it. I think when I think about it in my mind and I tell the story in my mind or I hear the story, I think about the Roman guards, the centurions. I think about those that are right there and Jesus being lifted up. But Jesus was stripped of all dignity, all humanity, and experienced the nakedness that we so desperately try to cover, the shame that we so desperately try to cover up from. He was lifted up for everyone to see, including his own mom. When he was crucified on the cross in our place for our sin. Friends, you have a savior who knows the depth of your shame. Who is acquainted with the shame of your nakedness. In fact, the early church, you, you probably heard it, they, not this part, but the early church will often refer to Jesus as Christus Victor. Yes and amen. Amen. Christ the victorious one over Satan, sin, and death. The early church also very often wrote about Jesus as Christus Nudus, the naked Savior, the naked Messiah. Because his victory wasn't simply for our guilt. He was acquainted with the depth of our shame He allowed himself to be crucified and shamed in such a public and tormenting way so that by the grace of God, your deep, legitimate shame because of your sin before a holy God and the misplaced ways shame wants to take control of your heart and your life can be covered and you can be set free So much so is this central to the understanding of the gospel. And I told you last week, 40 years I probably missed all this. So central is this to the reality of the gospel, that when you go and read about salvation in the New Testament, you go read Paul, you go read Peter, nearly every time they're talking about the impact of the gospel, impact of salvation on people's lives, they talk about someone being clothed anew, covered, hidden, And it's not just robes that are prettier and shoes that fit better and necklaces that attract more attention. They talk specifically about being clothed with Christ. So central is this reality to salvation and the gospel being hidden in Jesus, clothed in him, covered in him, that Paul will talk about it in relation to baptism and the sacraments. Friends, you have a savior, a king, who has not just set you free from the penalty of your guilt and sin and given you, in that sense, the way we talk about, a clean slate of innocence before God because you're hidden in Him. He knows the deepest recesses of your shame and your fear of being exposed. And He's made a way for you to hide. On the cross, when... Jesus was hung, naked and shamed, taking upon his body that which he did not deserve. When he took his last breath, something happened right there in Jerusalem. You may remember the story, but it figures back to Genesis chapter 2, so that's why I want you to see it. In the temple, there were multiple partitions and places in the temple the temple was sequestered in different ways where certain people could only go to certain places and certain, certain depths of the temple based on who you were and where you were from and, and how you had been born and what part of the people of God you'd been born into. So the priests could go to places that other people couldn't go. The high priest could go where those priests couldn't go. Different ways like that. But in the temple, the furthest most part in the temple was called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is where the Ark dwelled, where only once a year the high priest could enter on the Day of Atonement, offering that sacrifice of atonement in the place of the sins of his own life and for all of God's people. And separating the inner part of the temple from the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelt with his people, was a big curtain, a big veil. You remember hearing about that? Have you ever read the story? What was separating God's people from being back into the presence of God after their sin in the garden where God dwelled with them and walked with them. What did he put there? I told you earlier, do you remember? Put two cherubim, swords, not allowing the people back into the presence of God, in their shame separated from the presence of a holy God again. What do you think God purposed to be adorned on that veil or on that curtain that separated the inner part of the temple from the holy of holies where his presence was? Cherubim. When Jesus took his last breath of victory on the cross, the veil in the temple tore in two, separating that which had kept man from being able to enter into the presence of God, holy, clean, righteous. In his Son, God made a way to not only deal with your guilt, but cover The deepest realities of the shame that your sin has brought and the misplaced shame that has been tried to put upon you, so that you can once again enter into his presence naked and not ashamed. Once again, return back to that place with him, completely aware but not self conscious. Back to that place again where Psalm 31 becomes the song of praise and joy from your lips to your king. I praise you because of how you made me, because of how you formed me, because you said it was very good, That in love you intricately wove me together. This body that you have made, that I see that you keep going, that you keep breathing, that you keep the heart pumping, that you keep the food working, that you keep moving. This body that you have so intricately and wonderfully made, I praise you for it because in your presence again, I can be completely unashamed. Because you gave me a new way to hide and a new place to hide. I'm not having to come up with my own ways anymore. I'm not having to figure out my own paths anymore, my own leaves anymore. You've given me what I could not give myself. Friends, it's by the grace of God, through the work of the gospel, that our perspective, our narrative begins to change. And as one writer said, we stop limiting ourselves and limiting our body to the purpose of their appearance. And rather, we start using them as a means of praise due to the intricacy of their design. And we remember again that they're wonderful because they're meant by our king to lead us to worship, not to keep us as a hindrance from it. Friends, God, in his Son, by his Spirit, is doing the work of setting you and I free from the legitimate shame that kept us separated as outsiders before God, but free from the misplaced shame that again tries to set itself in between us and God and others. We have a Redeemer who took on physical flesh and whose appearance Scripture describes as far from physically perfect. Do you remember how Isaiah talked about him? There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing, Isaiah said, that would attract us to him. Yet, in what is often called God's upside-down kingdom, the deepest problem that underpins the shame that you and I feel with regard to our body, that misplaced shame, it was decisively dealt with through what the Bible would describe as an unattractive man. Who willingly exchanged his divine majesty for humble humanity so that you and I could receive and begin to live in what God would declare as an eternal beauty, that which was precious in his eyes, the image and the righteousness of his son. Our bodies, friends, were not created to be objects of worship. They were meant to be instruments of worship for our Creator. That's why you can receive and hear Paul when he says, I urge you to present your body in view of God's mercy, in view of his mercy towards you, in view not just of his forgiveness, but in view of his covering and his cleansing. Offer your body as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Friends, this morning, whatever your body is like when you look in the mirror, whatever it is you see when you look in the mirror, you need to realize That there is no particular prerequisite of beauty that is required by God for you to offer the body that He made for you, very good, with glory and honor to Him as worship. You are fearfully, wonderfully made. And it's the work of his spirit in us that together allows us, as long as it's called today, to progressively live in that reality and move one another in the direction of believing what David said in Psalm 139, believing that that's true about you, believing that that's true about me. It's the work of his grace by his spirit through his word and his people together that progressively helps us to live free from the misplaced shame that so many of us feel and live in with regards to the bodies that God gave us that he said are good. Friends, he saved us and has covered us not by shaming us but by showing us the continued depths of God's abundant grace. Grace for our guilt, grace for our shame, this grace is the antidote. It is the solution. It is the power to deal with the legitimate shame that we have because of our sin and the misplaced shame that an enemy wants us to be crippled by. Friends, it's this grace that we have the privilege together of encouraging one another in every single day of celebrating every week as we gather it's this grace that god has given us that we make so much of because it's this grace that sets us free it's this grace that cleanses us it's this grace that teaches us a new way to hide this morning we are going to have a chance to respond together and we're going to do that in a few ways the first way is I am going to pray, and as I pray, we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on God's word yourself, what you have heard, what God is dealing with you in your own heart. This may be a moment for you to, in your own way, make the words of David in Psalm 139, your praise to God for who he's made you to be. It may be a moment for you to recognize that God has done what you can't do and can never do, and he has provided for you a way out of Covering for, cleansing from the legitimate shame that you feel because of your sin and you can know the cleansing freedom of God through faith in his son. For some, it may be a time for you to receive that by faith this morning. For some of you, it may just be a time for you to recognize the misplaced shame that you have been living with and living in with regard to the body that God has given you and ask him to help you to see more clearly and more fully the depth of his covering for you in his son and ask him to help you learn more specifically how to hide in him so that Psalm 139 can be yours one day. But we're going to give you a couple of minutes to pray to deal with him and then we're going to respond together by receiving communion for those who have known of his grace through faith and belief in his son. We're gonna invite you forward and you can remember his body naked and broken on the cross in your place for your sin and for your shame as you dip that bread in the cup remembering his blood shed for your forgiveness and your cleansing. If we have time, we'll sing We'll make much of him and then we'll be sent out from here. So let me pray and then we'll give you a couple of moments to reflect. Father, we thank you this morning for a reminder of just how expansive your grace is for us and how much we shortchange you and how much we shortchange the work of your son. How much we underestimate the power and the scope of the gospel how easily we're content to live with that which is less than what you created us for. How easily we believe a false narrative that tells us we deserve this shame, we deserve to feel this way. We believe, we believe your grace for the forgiveness from our sin, but somehow we think we're just supposed to live in the shame. God, we ask this morning that you would do the miracle that only you can do by your spirit and you would help our hearts in here this morning together to see anew the realities of the magnitude of your grace for our guilt and for our shame. God, we want to be people that live free but that live in joy. We want to be a people known for joy in you. And for that to be a reality, we need a work of your spirit in our hearts with regard to the shame that holds us back. So God, we ask that you would do that in Jesus' name.